Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for braving the snow. Uh, hopefully we all get home this afternoon, or we'll just have a big party here, right? Um, if you would, turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. <clears throat> Actually, we're going to do something a little different this morning. If you could stand as I read through this portion of Scripture. Be reading through a little bit bigger chunk of scripture and just stand. Uh, this is the word of God, uh, inspiring Paul or John to to write God's words. Verse eighteen, children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us. They would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they were all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. I write these sayings to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from, from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should should teach you. But as the anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for this uh, epistle of 1 John, Lord, that you inspired John to write this, Lord, uh, for the church that he was a part of, this church that he loves, Lord, but also for us, Lord, as followers of you, Lord. Uh, God, I pray that we hear these words, that we take them serious, Lord, that we take false teaching, Lord, as serious as you take false teaching, Lord. I know we live in a day and age where everyone's opinion is considered equal, Lord, but it is clear in your word that your word, Lord, your inspired word stands far above man's opinion. I pray that we're a church that is known by submitting to your word, Lord, in teaching and in action, Lord, that our lives are characterized as people that, that, that not only hear your word, but do your word, Lord. Be with us this morning as we go over this passage. I pray for your Holy Spirit to help us, Lord. Help me as I preach, Lord, as I teach, that I say nothing that uh, is not um, from your word, Lord. In your son's name, amen. How do you discern the presence of false teaching or false teachers within the church? How do you uh, distinguish false teaching from too, true teaching or false teachers from true teachers? Right from the beginning of the church, right from the beginning, when I mean in Acts, starting in Acts 2 and on, the Christian church has always been attacked by false teachers. There's always been false teachers and false teaching that is threatening the church. I want you to think about this. Just about every single New Testament book deals with false teaching at, at one point or another. Me and Brent were, were uh, Pastor Brent were thinking about this a while ago and just going through each book, and, and it's amazing. Just about every single New Testament book. I actually can only think of one, and I, Philemon's the only one I can think of that doesn't address. And I might be wrong in that. I, I need to think through that. It's why many of the, the books of the New Testament were written, just like 1 John. 1 John was written to address false teaching. And there's a wide variety of false teaching in the New Testament. It wasn't that like there was one major teaching that the church was dealing with. There's a wide variety. Pauline epistles are dealing with legalism. James, the epistles of John, just like 1 John, is dealing with the opposite, antinomialism, which is just the opposite of legalism. Acts 17, Paul's dealing with radical polytheism, 
In Acts 7, Stephen's arguing against radical monotheism. Throughout all of church history, there's been false teachers and teaching. You can go through Acts all the way through Revelation, through the Middle Ages, through the Reformation, through the Enlightenment, through the modern era. Every generation has dealt with false teaching. Starting in Genesis 3 and on, there has been false teaching and false teachers. Yet today, in today's Christianity, you almost get the idea that the church doesn't believe there is such thing as false teaching. As long as someone labels themselves as Christian or labels a book as Christian or a song as Christian or a movie as Christian, we just blindly assume it's Christian and it's teaching from, from Scripture. Today's church acts like false teaching is almost like it's not out there. And if it is out there, it's not that big of a deal or it's not that dangerous. At best, it's just differences of opinions on the Word of God. To be honest, I, I hesitate to use the word heresy because it's almost like a curse word in our culture. To call someone heretical or a heretic, or you just even call someone a false teacher, most people look at that as being narrow-minded or bigoted or dogmatic or arrogant. You get labeled very quickly as unloving. But I want you to listen to what, what John, the apostle of love, in the epistle of love says in verse 18, Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. John calls the false teachers he's dealing with Antichrist. Is that harsh? I mean, listen to what John says. In verse 18, he says, Children, it's the last hour. This is the same as the last time in First Peter chapter 1, verse 20, or the last days in Acts, chapter 2, 18, or Hebrews, chapter 1, 1 through 2. It's this period of time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. It's a period of time we're in right now. We're in the last hour. And the Bible is clear that the last days or the last hour will themselves have last days or last hours. In other words, just before Jesus comes back in his second coming, there'll be, there'll be grievous corruption and, and moral depravity. Second Peter 3, verse 3. There'll be ungodly uh, scoffers and, and false prophets, 1 Timothy 4, 1. There'll be people with itchy ears following false teachers because these teachers are teaching what they want to hear. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. And it's also clear in these last days of the last days, or the last hours of the last hours, there'll be an Antichrist. An Antichrist is coming, which will be the antithesis of Christ. He'll be a false shepherd. Instead of a, a, a shepherd that loves his sheep and lays his life down for his sheep, it'll be a shepherd that wants to slaughter them. Zachari Zachariah portrays him as a, the son of destruction or violence. And look what John says in, in chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. John is saying that, that these false teachers have come in the spirit of Antichrist. Really? I mean, think about that. What were, what were these false teachers teaching? This is, this is what it says in, in 2 John verse 7. It says this, For many deceivers have gone into the world, those who do not confess that the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. So a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. In other words, the, these people teach that Jesus wasn't physical. That's what they teach. And John labels them antichrist. Is that harsh? An antichrist? I mean, maybe misled or, or confused, but antichrist? And if someone talked like that today, if someone called out someone and said, that's an antichrist by name, it'd be considered unloving. They get labeled unloving right away. But John doesn't hesitate, right? and he gets his boldness from Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew seven fifteen: Beware of false prophets, this is false teachers. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. In other words, they look like Christians. They look like followers of Christ, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. 
Jesus calls these false teachers ravenous wolves. To Jesus, false teaching is a big deal. It's a big deal. And he's warning us. He's warning the church. He's saying, beware. Right? Don't be arrogant. Don't think, hey, I got this. Beware. Jesus says, be on your guard. Imagine this imagery with me. A wolf in sheep's clothing. Right? A wolf, in other words, that gets to spend a whole night with sheep. Unsupervised. Without any protection. The carnage. Right? The, the next morning you'd have. I remember I lived under the Joneses. If you knew the Joneses, I miss the Joneses. Uh, many of us have been to their house, and they had this huge basement underneath it that, that was an apartment, and they let us live there when I was a seminary. Um, and I remember we were right next to the garage, and there was a door right by where our bed was and just went right into the garage. And I heard something in the garage. And I'm like, some raccoon or something got in the garage, but I am not opening this door. They're like, they can do their business. We'll clean up the mess tomorrow. What I forgot was there was a bunch of chickens in cages in the garage. So I opened the door the next morning, and there was just blood everywhere as they ripped pieces of the chicken through the, the, the cages. I'm guessing it was raccoons, but there was carnage everywhere. That's what Jesus says. He uses his imagery, false prophets, these, these wolves, the carnage that comes from that. When I think of this, when I think of this imagery, this, the carnage and these wolves attacking, attacking sheep and sheep in, or wolves in sheep clothing, I automatically every time think of theological liberalism. If you haven't studied church history, you're probably not familiar with that term, theological liberalism. Let me just say this right off the bat. We're not talking about political liberalism. I almost wish it had a different term. This was a, this was a theological movement. It was a belief in the, 18, uh, or in the 19th century, in the 1800s. Theological liberalism was a, was a theological movement within, within seminaries and, and churches. And if I could simplify it, it's actually hard to describe exactly what, what theological liberals believed in the 1800s. But if I can simplify it, it started by, by denying one main doctrine. It's common across all theological liberals. That's the inerrancy of Scripture. 1800s, theological seminaries and theologians started doubting the inerrancy of Scripture. They said there was errors in Scripture. And I promise you, if you read some of these early theological liberals or pastors that were adopting this theology, most people in the church, most people in the church wouldn't be able to discern the error that they were, they were sneaking into the church. You would read them and go, these guys love the Lord. For sure these guys are Christians. They love Scripture. I believe most Christians today wouldn't be able to discern the false teaching. They would say these men sound like Christians. These men sound like sheep. But history has proven that these, these men were wolves in sheep's clothing. And the crack, right, the crack of denying the inerrancy of Scripture opened the door to carnage. It opened the door to carnage. And there is pastors Charles Spurgeon be one of them that was sounding an alarm saying, this will destroy the church. This will destroy seminaries. Theological liberalism did just that, destroyed churches. That's why if you go to Europe, there's these massive churches, church buildings that are just empty. Many denominations that founded American even, America even, Congregationalists, American Baptists, a lot of Presbyterians, just destroyed it destroyed seminaries. That's why Harvard, Yale, Princeton are hardly recognized as Christian anymore. Theological liberalism, which started in the 1800s, is why Europe is, is not even recognized as a Christian, Christian, Christian continent anymore. To find the church in Europe is hard. I even read an article, and I have it in my office, that connects theological liberalism, which started in Germany... It started in Germany and spread to European countries and then spread to America. This, this article connects theological liberalism. You can follow the trail straight to the theology of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime. I think false teaching is a big deal. 
pure carnage. Beware of false prophets who come to you in, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Then Jesus says in verse 16, you'll recognize them by their fruits. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Well, what's a fruit of a false teacher? Well, John gives us three fruits in today's passage. Three fruits of a false teacher. Three fruits of an antichrist. And in typical First John fashion and how John writes, he, 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 he likes to contrast things, right? Light and darkness, love and hate. John likes to go back and forth. And so he gives three fruits of an antichrist, and he also gives three fruits of a follower of Christ. And he goes back and forth in these fruits. So this morning I'm going to jump around because I think it's, it's, it's helpful to separate uh, the three fruits. So we're going to start with three fruits of an antichrist and then look at three fruits of a follower of Christ. So three fruits of an antichrist, a false teacher. The first fruit is this. They will fall away. They will fall away. They'll leave the apostolic faith and apostolic fellowship. Look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Right, it's obvious in First John, as we've been going through First John, that, that this church that he's writing to, there was some kind of split. There was this riff. Right? There was two groups, and we don't know how big the groups were, but obviously a big group of people left the church. And the groups, the two groups in this passage are the they's and the us. The they's and the us. And the personal pronouns in these few verses are extremely important. The they's and the us. Why are they important? Because John identifies himself with one of these two groups. Look at verse 19. They, that's one group. They went out from us. That's the other group. And they were not of us. The first group, the, the us right? John identifies with. It's a, it's a group that he fellowships with. They fellowship with him, who's an apostle. It's a group that is holding firm to the apostolic teaching, the, the teaching of the apostles, the New Testament. The other group, the they, went out. They left the fellowship. They left the apostolic fellowship. This group didn't leave, didn't just leave the church. They left the teaching of the apostles. And why did they leave? Well, it says this, that it might become plain that they are all are not of us. In other words, it was God-ordained. It was God-ordained. It says, so that, so that the true believers would know that they were not of us, that they were false teachers never following Christ to begin with. I mean, think about it. Virtually every cult or, or many false religions even today were founded by someone who came out of a local church. And someone that left the clear teaching of the apostles too. Mormonism. Joseph Smith came out of a local church and says the New Testament scriptures are corrupt. Jehovah Witnesses deny the clear teaching of Scripture and say you need the Watchtower Society to even interpret Scripture anyways. Theological liberals, we talked about them, they say that the Scripture is full of errors. Muslims even, Scriptures are corrupted. Jews, right? the New Testament Scriptures aren't inspired. They went out from us that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Just a side note on this, too, as I was thinking through this. Leaving the fellowship, right, not, not coming to church, leaving church, leaving a small group, it's one of the first signs that someone's fallen into sin. Been around the church long enough to, to see that. And someone hasn't been coming for a few months, and you're like, well, wait a second, I haven't seen so-and-so for a long time. You find out later that his marriage has fallen apart, or he's in some kind of gross sin, or he's struggling with something. It's not a guarantee that that person's in sins, but it's one of the, the, one of the first signs that someone's in sin. They just stop coming. This is why, again, as we're pushing small groups, it's why small groups are so important because a lot of times people stop coming to church and we won't notice for months. By the time we finally notice, they're so engulfed in that sin. 
But if you leave a small group, you'll, you'll be noticed real quickly. You'll get a phone call and you can say, oh yeah, I have work or whatever, or I'm really struggling with this. It's a way of keeping accountable. So the first fruit is falling away. The second fruit of an antichrist or, or false teacher is the denial of the biblical Jesus. It's denying the biblical Jesus. Look at verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. A false teacher, an Antichrist, has a false Christology. It's clear, clear evidence. It's a false teacher. What's Christology? Well, it's the study of Christ. It's the doctrine surrounding Christ. It's the, the theology surrounding Christ. It's just the biblical truth, what the Bible reveals about Christ. I mean, think about this. Again, all cults, every single cult and every single false religion has a heretical view of Jesus. Jehovah Witnesses, Unitarians, Mormons, theological liberals, mainline Protestants, Islam, Jews, all deny the deity of Christ. Therefore, one of the quickest ways you can tell if a teacher is heretical or not is their belief surrounding Christ. You can just ask one question, who is Jesus? Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? And what are the effects of denying Jesus? We'll look at verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. If you deny Jesus, you're not in fellowship with, with the Father. It's clear. You're not saved. That's what 1 John 5.12 says. Whoever, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John MacArthur says this. Any denial or deviation or distortion of the scriptural view of Jesus Christ his incarnation, that he is both son of God and son of man, the promised prophet, priest, king, and redeemer. Any denial of any one of these truths constitutes the spirit of the Antichrist. Side note again, it, just in day-to-day conversation with people, just because someone claims to be a Christian doesn't mean they're Christian. We know that, right? Just because someone claims to be a Christian does not mean they're Christian. It's hard to attach you because I think everyone claims to be a Christian to attach you just about. One of the easiest ways to find out if someone is saved is just ask them, who is Jesus? What's your beliefs on Jesus? Who is he? The third fruit of an antichrist or a false teacher is this. They try to deceive. They try to deceive. Verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Right, this fruit's obvious. False teachers, by definition, are trying to deceive, right? I mean, because they are false teachers, they're trying to deceive you. But here's what might, might not be so obvious. They're trying to deceive you. I mean, think about that. They're not being upfront with you. They're not being honest. Instead, they're trying to be winsome. They're trying to win you over. They're, they're being deceptive. What do I mean by this? Well, if you ever talk to a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon, they're going to sound very Christian. They're going to use biblical terms. They'll use the word grace, and they mean something completely different by the word grace. They'll even use the Bible. They're not always up front with you, too. I had a Jehovah Witness at my house a while ago, and I remember he came, and I was ready, you know, I had my Bible, I was ready to start arguing and I remember sitting there, and the guy was talking to me, and I just agreed with everything he said. I'm like, wait a second. Everything he said was, was theologically sound, and I thought I was losing my mind. I'm like, okay, what's going on here? So I finally asked him, because then I started realizing he's avoiding what we, we disagree on. He's avoiding what we disagree on. So I asked him, I'm like, he, he's like, do you have any questions? I'm like, yeah, what do we disagree on? Can we go there? I'm like, you know what church I go to? Where, where do we disagree? Let's start talking there. And he finally says something about Jesus. I say, okay, let's have the real conversation now. And I think about that because he, he was ready to leave. He was just trying to gain my trust by saying things he knew I believed. And I'm guessing to come back to start saying some things that, that might get me off track. Even Muslims will say, 
Allah is merciful and loving. I, I went to a mosque and seminary to talk with the imam there just to, to see what they believe, to witness to him. And there's a funny story behind that one, but the guy, all right, I'm going to tell it. <laughs> the guy pulled up. It was this very conservative mosque, so they were trying to get us all like, okay, here's how you can offend them, here's how you can offend them, let's not do this, not do this, not do this. And you, these guys from a different country, they, you know, they're not, they're not used to our culture, so let's be respectful when we go there. And, uh, and, the, and the teachers and professors have gone there a lot, and uh, we're there, and so I'm all nervous and waiting. And this guy comes in a lowered Honda with dice in the mirror, and gets out with his long beard and his robe and Jordans on. And it's the new imam at the mosque that grew up in New York. And he was great. I mean, he, he knew our culture. He wasn't getting offended easily. But he said, Allah is merciful. Allah is loving. He means something completely different by merciful than when we say mercy. Even atheists. Right? Some atheists are brutally honest. And I'm thankful for them. Right? We know where they stand. But most atheists are most atheistic professors, at least, are trying to be winsome. I, mean, I love the movie, and don't get me wrong, it's one of our movies, God's Not Dead, but it's not realistic. It's not realistic. Most atheistic professors, when you go to, to colleges, aren't there to be jerks. They know you won't listen to them if they're jerks. And you know what? The ones that are jerks because they're out there, I'm not worried of them. No one's going to listen to them. <laughs> Right? We can send our kids to them and let them hear them because they'll be like, that guy's a jerk. I don't, want to, I don't care what he says. It's the ones that are winsome. Right? Caleb Owens actually just did a report. It was an apologetic report, and I was helping him out with it, and I gave him the idea. I said, hey, write some professors that you know are atheists from either uh, Cal State Bakersfield, BC, or AB. Just write them and see if they'll meet with you just to, to talk with them about this to see the other side. And he got this professor that wrote him back, and the guy was the nicest guy in the world. He said, man, that's cool. I'm glad you're a Christian. I'm glad you believe that. You know, I'm an atheist, and this is why. He's being winsome. He's being winsome. We need to prepare our kids for that. It's those professors that are going to be, hey, come hang out with me. Come over to my house. We'll, we'll have a good time. We'll just hang out. Knowing that eventually he's going to gain the trust and then start speaking errors in their life. And here's the other thing, too. We've got to teach our kids that it's okay to like someone and be friends with someone and disagree with what we believe. That's important. You can like a professor that's an atheist and not believe what he believes. That's okay. Even atheists, though, are winsome. They're deceptive. We need to be careful. A lot of times I I see false teachings just very subtly in Christian books and Christian movies and Christian songs. They're just small errors. Small errors. Just like theological liberalism, when it first came out, most people would not discern the small errors that they were hiding in their teaching, in their sermons, in their books. They're trying to deceive you. So the three, three fruits of a false teacher, of an antichrist, they will fall away, they'll deny the biblical Jesus, They'll try to deceive. Now I want to look at three fruits of a follower of Christ. We're going to go through the first two quick and spend some time on the third one. The first fruit is this. They are born of the Spirit. They are born of a Spirit. That's the first fruit of a follower of Christ. Look at verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. What is he referring to here, John? You have been anointed by the Holy Spirit. When, when you were, were saved, the Holy Spirit brought life to you, spiritual life to you, and the Holy Spirit dwelt in you. You were anointed by the Holy Spirit, and if you're saved this morning, you, you still have that Spirit within you. Third member of the Trinity living in you. That's the first fruit of a follower of Christ. There's spiritual rebirth and the Holy Spirit living within us. The second fruit is this. They, they will know the gospel Look at verse 20, the second part says this, and, and they all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Now this is important, especially later on in this passage. John is talking to Christians here. He's talking to believers. He says, you know the truth. Remember that word, gnosko. Right? That's where the Gnostics, that's the name they come from. He says, you guys have knowledge. You know the truth. 
Let me ask the question, what do you need to know to be saved? What do you need to know and believe to be saved? Simple, the gospel message. The gospel. The good news. Not some secret knowledge that these Gnostics have. You only need to know the good news that Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, on the third day was raised, and now is sitting at the right hand of God as Lord of lords and King of kings. And if you put your faith in him, you'll be saved. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you don't have a relationship with Christ, put your faith in him and be saved. True followers have this knowledge. True followers have two things. They have the Spirit living within them, and they know the gospel. The third fruit is this. They will abide. They will abide. They'll abide in both the Spirit and the gospel. Look at verse 24. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. I want you to hear how many times he uses that word abide. Let me start over. Verse verse 24. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you have received from him abides in you. The Greek word abide is meno. It means to remain in the same place over a period of time, literally just to remain, to stay. The fruit of a true follower of Christ is simply abiding, remaining, staying, enduring, persevering. John Stott says says this, endurance is the hallmark of the saved. Endurance is the hallmark of the saved. Again, I want to be clear. This is a fruit, not a work. It's evidence of salvation. It's not what makes you saved. Look at verse 24. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. Well, what did you hear from the beginning? What did each one of us hear at the beginning of our salvation? The gospel. Let what you've heard from the beginning abide in you. And look at verse 27. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. What's the anointing that you received? Again, that's the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the new birth, the spirit indwelling, living within us when we were saved. So with that, let's look at verse 26 again. I write these sayings to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is another tricky passage in John. I didn't realize first, first John has so many tricky passages when I first picked to go through first john but i am learning a ton in these tricky passages and i'm not going to shy away from them look at verse 27 let's read it again and i want you to think what this is saying at face value if i just pulled 27 verse 27 without any context what does it sound like let me read it but the anointing again that's the holy spirit but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you but as his anointing teaches you about everything, right? At face value, that sounds like we, we shouldn't be taught. In other words, you should get up right now and leave. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Again, at face value, if I was just to pull that out without any context. But instead of being taught, we should let the Holy Spirit somehow mystically just teach us without any human teachers. And well, that can't be the meaning for two reasons. First, John is teaching them. We think about that. He's teaching them, and if that's what he means, he's teaching them not to listen to a human teacher. Right? It'd be hypocritical. You don't need to be taught. And I want you to think, too, he's not just writing this. He was a pastor of this church for a long time. Teaching. Second reason it can't mean this is, is that Scripture is clear that we are called to teach one another. There's a principle that we need to understand when we're interpreting Scripture. It's a hermeneutical principle. Hermeneutics is a fancy term just meaning the science of interpretation. Like what rules? You guys are using hermeneutics right now, actually, as you're trying to interpret what I'm saying. 
right? You're taking me at context. You're trying to get to my intentional me. I mean, there's a whole bunch of rules that you just do without thinking through them. Hermeneutics is the science of interpretation. And one of the, the science of interpretation when it comes to Scripture, and actually in every conversation, is using the more clear text or the majority of texts to interpret the less clear text or the, the minority text. So take what Scripture says as a majority, and if you come to something that, that seems like it's contradicting what the majority is saying, interpret that with the majority of Scripture. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? Well, the mass, the vast majority of Scripture says that we are called to teach. It's amazing how many New Testament passages tells us, commands us to teach. I'm just going to give you a few examples. I want to be clear. These are just a few. This is not exhaustive. A few examples of, our, 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 of the command to teach one another. The first one is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Just so you know, the Greek word there means learners. It could be translated learners, implying that there's teachers of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to absorb all that I have commanded you. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, and God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. 2 Timothy 2, 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach. It's the calling of the pastor. 2 Timothy three sixteen. all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Galatians 6.6, let the one who, who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Titus 2.7-8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned. 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those laboring in, in preaching and teaching. 2 Timothy 2, 2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I want you to think about that one for a second, that one verse. Paul is saying, what you have learned from me, he's talking to Timothy, Paul is teaching Timothy. What you have been taught by me, Timothy, teach others who will be faithful to teach others. That's four generations worth of teaching. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their, their powers of discernment trained by, by constant practice in distinguishing good from evil. I want to brag on our high schoolers for a second. We've been going to Hume for, I think, I don't know, 10 years or something like that. And, and we normally have awesome teachers and, and preachers at Hume. They've just been great. It's one of the reasons we keep going back. I know it's expensive, but man, the teaching has been amazing, so we keep going back. It was about three years ago or four years ago, we had a teacher that was good. He shared the gospel clearly. He preached the gospel. He said a few things that were off. I remember thinking to myself, well, should I bring the high schoolers together? Should I like, tell them, and I was just saying, you know, it, it was kind of small. I'm just going to let it go. I don't want to. Right away, three separate high schoolers came up to me and goes, Nathan, that was off. <laughs> that was off. And not just that. Here's why it's off. Opening up scriptures, going through scripture, giving me verse after verse after verse separately. Three separate, not coming together separately, telling me why it's off. And, and the thing that I think I was most impressed with was all their attitudes were good. It wasn't arrogant. wasn't legalistic. wasn't like, hey, this teacher is horrible. It was just exciting that, like, hey, I, I figured out that this was off. <laughs> Proud of those kids. Good job, parents. Good job, parents. That comes from good parenting. That comes from good parenting. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. 
and he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. These are gifts to the church. To equip the saints, teachers, to equip the saints for, for, for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we have all attained the unity of the, the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may not no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, false teachers. We don't get pulled to and fro by false teachers. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. First Timothy four eleven through 13 Command and teach these things. This is Paul telling Timothy what to do as a pastor. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believer an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, in love, in purity, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. 2 Timothy 4.1 I charge you, Timothy, this is, this is Paul telling Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearance and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Rebuke, or reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Complete patience and teaching. I had a pastor once, a friend of mine, a good friend of mine, and we were just talking about the different churches, and he says, yeah, man, your guys' church is all about teaching. So our church really isn't known for teaching and preaching. That's not our thing. I asked him to read First and Second Timothy and Titus and underline, right, these are, these are, these are books for pastors. Underline teaching, preaching, and sound. Every time those words are mentioned, just underline them. That's your calling as a pastor. Titus 1.5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I, as I direct you. And here's the qualifications of the elders. Verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. All character issues besides one. Verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction. In other words, teach in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Not just teach, but rebuke those that contradict it. Calling out false teaching and false teachers. That's my job. That's the pastor's job. That's the calling. Rebuke those who contradict it. I'm going to be honest. The reason I go through all of these this morning and spend so much time on just this one point is there is a movement out there that's starting to worry me. It's starting to worry me. So much so that I've been considering for a while just stopping in First John and doing a, a sermon on it. It was first, I was first introduced to it as a, a movement in, in missions. It's what they're teaching missionaries. Honestly, I, from what I'm seeing, 90% of the missionaries that are going out are getting taught this as a methodology of how to, to, to reach the nations. I'm starting to see it now in popular Christianity, in, in books by popular preachers that, that most of us love. It's a home church movement, which I have nothing against home churches. I actually want to see more home churches. I want to see people within our church opening up their home for smaller churches, right? What is that called? Small groups. I'd love to see more of that. But here's what scares me. It's the methodology that they're promoting. It's an unbiblical methodology. Don't get me wrong. When you hear methodology, you think, well, that's not a big deal. Different people have different methodologies. Not if it's unbiblical. 
It's an unbiblical methodology. They're, they're calling pastors and, and missionaries not to teach. And even sometimes not to share the gospel. But instead, they say, all you need to do is get a group of people, a group of non-believers, spiritually dead people together and read the scriptures out loud and let the Holy Spirit teach them and do no teaching whatsoever. Just have them read it. And as soon as you can pull away and just continue them to read the scriptures by themselves, the better. And they use passages like 1 John 2.27 to support their beliefs, but by doing so, they ignore the hundred other passages that tell us to teach. They're even trying to get pastors and missionaries, they're telling them, don't get trained in the Word. We'd rather you not be trained. We need to be teaching one another. We need to be discipling one another. The Bible is clear. We are called to teach. We are called to preach. What's the difference between preaching and teaching? Preaching's louder. So what does John mean when he says, you have no need that anyone should teach you? Remember the context. Remember the context. Look at verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, right? There's people trying to deceive the church. What are they deceiving them? What are they trying to say? They're a group of false teachers, Antichrist, the Gnostics, that claim they have a secret knowledge that will bring salvation. And look what John says, verse 27. It's clear. You have no need that anyone should teach you. You don't need this secret knowledge. You don't need to be taught this secret knowledge, in other words. For salvation. You're already saved. He made that clear in verse 21. Look at verse 27. It says this, but the anointing, the Holy Spirit, but the anointing that you have received from, from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. In other words, you have the Holy Spirit live within you. That's evidence that you're saved. You don't need anything else to be saved. You don't need some secret knowledge. But as this anointing teaches you about everything, what's everything mean? Context, again, is salvation. Everything you need to know to be saved. In other words, your salvation isn't dependent on other men. You have everything you need if you're saved. Again, he's talking to Christians. Be clear, he's talking to Christians. You have everything you need. You have a personal relationship with God. Salvation isn't dependent on men. It's only dependent on your faith in Christ and what Christ did on the cross. Again, he's talking to Christians, those that have heard the gospel, the good news, and have the Spirit living within them. You don't need anything else. You have everything you need to be saved. One pastor put it this way. When the apostle asserted that that the believer do not need another other teachers he's not advocating a mystical anti-intellectualism that rejects all human teachers on the contrary the lord has given the church godly pastors elders and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service building up the body of christ ephesians 4 12 john's point is that believers must not rely on human wisdom or man-centered philosophy or any extra biblical teaching for their salvation Listen, I want to be clear. We need each other to grow. We need each other to grow in our relationship with the Lord in our sanctification. We need fellowship. We need discipleship. We need community. We need teaching to grow. But if you're a Christian this morning, if you're saved this morning, you have everything you need to be saved. Don't let people fool you. You don't need any extra work. Good deed, teaching, knowledge. You have all you need for salvation. Look at verse 27 again. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true, and is not no lie, just as it ha- has taught you, abide in him. There's that word again, abide. Abide in him. Abide, remain in him. As I was praying through this and thinking through this, I, I just have this peace with that word. I really think rest. 
rest. Abide in the gospel. Find rest there. When people say, hey, you're not saved because you need to do this, this, and this, rest. You know, I am saved. Christ died on the cross for my sins. You start doubting your salvation because you're not adding up to what you think it means to be a Christian. Rest. It has nothing to do with your works. It has everything to do with what Christ has done on the cross. Rest in the gospel. Rest in the spirit. Rest. Abide in Christ. Endure to the end. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing and inwardly are ravaged of wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. What are their fruits? They will fall away. They will deny the biblical Jesus. They will deceive. They will try to deceive. But true followers of Christ will abide. They'll abide in the gospel. They'll abide in the spirit. They'll abide in the biblical Jesus. True believers will endure till the end. Jesus says in Matthew or in Mark thirteen thirteen, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, I I thank you for your Spirit, Lord. I thank you for salvation. I thank you for what Christ has done on the cross, Lord. I thank you that we can find rest, Lord, in that. That we are called to abide, to continuously go back to the gospel message and remember it's not what we do, it's what you have done for us, Lord. That's where salvation comes from. I also thank you for teachers. I thank you for, for fellowship. I thank you for this church, Lord, that you have, you have ordained so that we, we can grow more and more like your son, Lord. Not because we, we need something to be saved, but because we love you and we love others, Lord, because you've put that in us. We have a desire, Lord, that we trust you, that, that chasing after you and loving others will, will, will find joy in that, Lord. Help us to truly believe that, Lord. I pray for our congregation, God, that you protect us from, from false teachers, from false teaching, from false prophets, Lord. Give us a discernment, Lord. I pray that we're not arrogant, bigoted, narrow-minded, I pray that we are biblical and that we judge everything through a biblical lens, Lord. And that when we find things that are unbiblical, Lord, we are bold enough to call it what it is. Be with us in that, Lord. I thank you. I thank you for this church. I thank you for this passage. In your son's name, amen.